Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. So welcome, uh, Gary. In the news this uh, this past week, uh, we learned that uh, Gail Hyman uh, has uh, been put in charge as the new CEO at Weber Shanwick. That now means that three of the top five PR agencies are now led by women. Um, so I'm sure that some people are are sort of. Uh, uh, excited about that. I'm excited about that. Uh, she's a terrific professional. Uh, but I, one of the things I do worry about is that some people might say, oh, we're done with diversity. Yeah, exactly. And congratulations to Gail, just a super smart person. And it's, it's deserved. You know, Mike, you and I see it in the classroom at Boston University. Uh, you see it in the agencies that we work with and at. Particularly with young people. Um, Yeah, particularly with young people that from a gender standpoint, there is just a bow wave of really smart women coming. So uh, I I don't think we're done, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly. And if you look at CCO roles, we've got some work to do there as well. Mm -hmm. But I think we've done well. Yeah, I think the profession has done well there and it is, is continuing to do well there. There are some other areas from a sort of an American diversity standpoint that we, we need to do yeah. better. Yeah. In fact, if you start so, to look at racial and ethnic diversity, we're still not where either one of us would, would think we should be. I know that uh, I, I commented, this is now three years old, but in 2016 at an event, uh, somebody asked me a question relative to where we were. Weren't we better off today than we were when I started uh, my career as the the uh, mm-hmm. first American-born uh, Latino to be the CCO for a Fortune 500 company? And and the reality is that actually a snapshot would tell us, you know, we're less than 10 percent, that is, uh, Mm -hmm. people who are diverse by ethnicity and race, uh, we're less than 10 percent. And I think the data point back then was 6.5 percent of all kind of leadership positions. Uh, And when I said leadership, it wasn't just the very top, but it was like taking all senior positions uh, in agencies and in the profession uh, were held by a person of of, of color. And Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, overall, as a population, we're we're somewhere around 35 percent. And uh, obviously, that's a lot of that is in younger people. Uh, but right. we've got a lot more to do, and I think that. Uh, but I think having um, people like Yale in senior positions and people who care and understand the need for greater diversity uh, will help those numbers over time. And and making sure that the pay uh, there's equality, obviously, not just being in the role. Absolutely. People, so so you, you know, know, last week we talked a little bit about pay equity, and one of the challenges consistently has been uh, that all too often uh, women and uh, and diverse individuals are hired in 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 places at uh, less than some of their other other colleagues. So 
uh, uh, I'm, I'm cheered by by the announcement from Weber Shannon. Yeah, and as am I. Now, I want to ask you about something that's going on this week that's hardly getting any media coverage, and so I want to include it here on the crux, and that's Robert Mueller <laughs> testifying in front of Congress. You know, I don't see talk about understatement. <laughs> Well, you know, you you have been someone, and you continue to do this, who prepares executives, whether it's in yeah. you know government, uh, politics, business, for these kinds of events that are so you know hard, uh, particularly for you know CEOs who may have an engineering background or some other thing, and you know for the Mueller hearing, the the Justice Department did put some guard guardrails on him on what he could and couldn't say related to the report or outside the report. So how do you, if you're an executive, how do you do one of these things where maybe you don't want to talk about something or you can't, uh, but still look like you're really trying to deliver um, the goods, be yeah. authentic, be responsive. What, what advice do you give people? Well, you have to find a way to say something short of no comment. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, historically, we've all we've all talked about you know that if you say no comment, they assume you're guilty or that you're hiding something very very ugly. Um, and so, what you try to do is address the question to the degree that you can. I mean, there are situations, and and, and you've had this too when you're mm-hmm. dealing. Uh, with uh, an acquisition or a merger, or you're dealing with some sensitive material that involves some kind of uh, uh, legal situation where you don't have the opportunity by law uh, to speak to anybody about the transaction or what's about to take place. Um, and what you try to do is you try to give them what you can and essentially say you will give them more when, uh, when you're able or when you, when, have you addi- when you have additional information. Um, but I do think you, you want to try to avoid no comment. Uh, I do think that in most instances you want to be as direct as you can. Uh, you don't want to seem as though you are evading uh, the question or or putting somebody off. And the other thing you don't want to do, sometimes people go in and they like rehearse one answer. And then they get asked the question like six or seven different ways. And like an automaton, you know, they beat their heads up oh. against the wall and provide the same exact words. And you see some of that on, especially on television. It's atrocious. On television, yeah. So how do you... You know, we're seeing a little bit of this with the Mueller hearing, too. You're not always there to answer questions, meaning the witness. You're there as a foil for some statement yeah. by the member of Congress, whether it's a senator or a representative. Yeah. How do you teach people to understand that, that this is a, uh, this is a forum for them to say something that they can clip meaning the member of Congress, right. send back to their constituents, et cetera. See, I'm holding this person's feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. That it's not about you. That's an important learning, I think, uh, going into these things. Yeah, I mean, so many times I think uh, executives or heads of various types of organizations, you know, they get the opportunity to go uh, present 
at a hearing on Capitol Hill, and the first one or two times they do this, they're very excited and they bone up, only to find out that uh, the news isn't about them. It's about uh, whatever the chairman or a member of that committee uh, wants to come out that day. Um, and I know this well because I actually used to be the press secretary to uh, to a former United States senator and knew exactly going in what we were looking for um, that day. So I think the key thing to do is to understand what is really the one thing. And you really only have one opportunity. You also have to play out. Uh, somewhat mm-hmm. defensively, uh, what is it that they're going to take you to task on? And be prepared uh, to respond, not in an indignant way, uh, but in right. a way that is, is is both logical and authentic and relevant to the circumstances. Uh, I sometimes found it also useful to paper it over with a, a statement afterwards in, in exactly. the form of a news yeah. release that would uh, advance, you know, that one point uh, so you didn't get lost in the din and the noise and the yelling and the screaming. Exactly. Well, really good advice. And let's just hope poor Bob Mueller gets some coverage today for his testimony uh, up on Capitol Hill. It, uh... I don't think he'll have a problem. <laughs> So we've got a great guest coming up in a minute, but I know there's one topic uh, that you wanted to mention in some of the talk talking that we did with Craig Buckholz from P&G about uh, yeah, things it, they're working you know, on. And, 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 and Craig is such a fabulous guest and a, and a terrific professional. Um, and it, it's interesting to watch and see, you know, P&G is a very focused, uh, very... Uh, consumer-centric company has been for years, but they're also very disciplined. They're all about mm-hmm. uh, yeah. numbers and doing it right. And one of the things that caught my eye as we were preparing for this interview is a, a study that came out uh, in a professional journal uh, or an academic journal about a, a pro, I think it's called pro, promotion Journal of Promotion Management. Um, and uh, and it's also covered online, there's, at least in, in sort of shortened form, uh, on the Institute for Public Relations website. And the title of the, of the study is, Is Earned Media More Credible Than Advertising? And through the years, there's been a lot of measuring, you know, how do consumer mm-hmm. ad- audiences in particular value what they see from earned media versus advertising. And what's interesting and what I'm going to want to know from Craig, first of all, I should say to everybody that this particular study, uh, which which was posted on the IPR site on July 15th, uh, what's interesting is it verifies the previous conclusions that earned media is valued. But what's intriguing to me about what P&G, and P&G, as you know, is the biggest advertiser in the world, but what, right. what P&G and others like Unilever and other CPG companies are attempting to do is they're attempting to look at what is it that makes earned media work and apply that to their work 
in paid media. So they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for capturing people in the moment. They're looking at being relevant. And they're forging interesting partnerships with media companies and the like. And in order to pull that into a space that begins, while it's paid for, begins to look and sound and feel a lot like those things that made earned media matter. Uh, exactly. So anyway, it'll be interesting to talk to Craig and see where he takes that. Yeah, and I think what you'll hear, you know, Mike, you and I see this, a lot of companies struggling with that kind of framework on uh, where they jump into social policy issues, human rights, etc. And it's the discipline that I've always liked about P&G that sets them apart and is a real learning for others. In, in other words, we know who we are. Right. We've uh, we've talked to our employees. We've listened to them. Uh, we understand what's important to them, and we understand what's important to us as a company. Do I do I file an amicus brief here? Do I you know do I put out a statement? And do I produce content that illuminates the issue that we're talking about exactly and pay right. for it to be seen? Yep. And and that's what I've always admired about them because uh, it's a big broad world out there, and you really have to be disciplined about. Um, uh, how you fit into it? Well, it also means that the new C, the new CCO is 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 different than what we were looking at thirty years ago. Oh yeah. Uh, in the totally. sense that they've got to be attuned to uh, the methods of the moment. They have to be attuned to what's happening in public affairs. They have to be attuned to what's happening in advertising and marketing, and they need to view their jobs uh, more as integrative. Uh, across the whole, as opposed to just very narrowly about communication. Exactly, exactly. So, look, great week, uh, great show, Mike. Uh, let's take a listen to to Craig Buckholtz from P&G on the Crux. And I want uh, folks to know out there, Craig is the first recipient of our terrific The Crux t-shirts and uh, The Crux uh, mug. And for future guests, if you, if you come on the show... Uh, real incentive for you to to agree to come on the show and get uh, one of the fashion items that'll be big. There you go. Wear them proudly. (laughs) All right. Let's listen to Craig and Mike and myself talk about uh, a great company, P&G. So welcome to the interview portion of the Crux, and we got a great guest today, Craig Buckholtz, the Chief Communications Officer at Procter & Gamble, P&G, uh, as it's known, 180 years old, and it's everywhere in your life, as you know, Tide, Crest, Soap, Pampers, we're going to talk about diapers today, by the <laughs> way, as well, uh, Bouncy, Head & Shoulders, I was just going through your Craig, through your website last night, Old Spice, hey, this is a nice, nice yep. product, Dawn Gillette, which is a recent addition, Pepto-Bismol, which you may need after we're done talking here. <laughs> but it's really, uh, it's a great company, and it's really a bellwether, uh, both for the economy and for trends in marketing, communication, sustainability, social value, you name it. 
I've learned a lot from P&G over the years, even though I work at a uh, at an industrial company, a B2B company, and hopefully we can pass on some of that learning today from Craig. You've been CCO since 2018, and yep. you also oversee both brand and the corporate functions, which we'll ask you about in a minute what that means, and you've been with, uh, with P&G since 2014. So uh, Mike and I have known Craig for a while, and uh, as I said, we share some experiences, although in very different kinds of companies, uh, things like dealing with activist investors, building a unified brand for very diverse companies, uh, and we'll talk about that. But Craig, tell me, uh, it, it has to be incredibly difficult these days, uh, leading communications for, and when I say difficult, challenging in a good way. Sure, communications sure. for for a consumer product company. What's what's the most challenging thing that that you see in your job on a day to day basis? Uh, well, so first of all, thanks for having me here. It's good good to hear your voices. I'm excited to actually be part of this. I think the uh, the most challenging aspect of serving as a CCO today is simply the dynamism and the breadth of the territory that we have to cover. I mean, you guys are both well aware that in this industry, we sort of joke that none of us ever knows exactly what any given day we'll have in store and like, why bother with a to-do list because it doesn't really matter. But I think <laughs> it's really been more true today than, than ever before. And I think it's attributable to the fact that our employees, our consumers, our stakeholders are looking to companies like P&G to not only provide a portfolio of superior plumbing products that improve their daily life, but also to use the power and the influence of their voice to improve the state of the world. Um, And that's a big swath of territory. And so we we really believe that we have this opportunity and the obligation as we talk about being a force for good in the world. Yeah, well, and in fact, you know, for years you guys have been a terrific example of how a consumer-centric approach to branding should work. You've had these wonderful family-oriented brands. Uh, but now there are new expectations from consumers around brands doing good uh, and driving mm-hmm. more focus on, on purpose. And and I know you guys take a real disciplined approach to this, uh, you know, which we've come to expect from P&G through the years. How does all this kind of get measured in what we're hearing? Um, you, I think the phrase that you guys are using in-house is a force for good and a force for growth. Yes, exactly. So so all of these things, I think the discipline point that you make is a really important uh, piece of context here. So all of the examples that, that we'll talk about maybe through the course of this discussion are under what we consider to be the, an umbrella known as citizenship, which is essentially how we endeavor to walk the talk as it relates to being this force for good. Uh, but keep in mind, we do this because it's aligned with the values and expectations of our consumers and stakeholders. So by virtue of that, it actually helps to drive the growth of the company as well. So that's, that's sort of the, the thinking and the strategy behind it. But we've narrowed it to five very specific choices in, in what we call the citizenship umbrella. The first, obviously, mm-hmm. is ethics and corporate responsibility, just fundamentally having a well-governed, well-run company. The second is around community impact. And so in there, we're making choices and doing things with tied loads of hope for disaster relief or children's safe drinking water, where we're bringing, we brought, I think, 15 billion liters of clean drinking water to community around the world. 
diversity and inclusion, where we've made uh, very specific choices and a focus on tackling bias, racial bias, LGBT mm -hmm. bias, uh, inclusion. Um, a couple of films out recently, one called The Look, one called The Talk, certainly, certainly part of that. Gender equality, where we uh, have transformed fundamentally the meaning of things such as like a girl. Um, we've talked about uh, taking on traditional gender roles in parts of the world like India, where we have a program called Share the Load, which is about the equitable distribution of household chores. And then, of course, you know, you've seen recently uh, some of the work we did with the U.S. Women's National Team and a donation mm -hmm. there to help bridge the gender pay gap. And then we're in the environmental sustainability space as well, looking at climate, waste, and water, but with a particular emphasis on water scarcity and on plastic. So yeah. those are, that's the territory. Wow. It's pretty broad, but yeah. it's not everything. Yeah. And the, the, all well, the it, choices it, that we it, make are it, within that. And I was going to say, Mike, it gets back to your first point about the breadth of what's on your plate. Uh, I, I, you've just gone through essentially, you know, the work of the United Nations in many ways. Or, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is extraordinary. And and I just wanted to get back to your your thought of connecting it to growth. So how how do you measure how those things that you're doing, like the donation to the women's um, soccer team, U.S. women's soccer team, how do you then make that connection back? To what's happening inside the company with sales and revenue, top and bottom line, all those things? Well, I think fundamentally we look at this in the context of the core strategy for the company. So we have a very clear growth strategy that we've been talking about for some time. And that growth is predicated upon having a superior offering across our, our, our product portfolio, whether that be the, the product itself, the packaging, the communications around it, mm -hmm. the retail execution, the value proposition. There's really these five fundamental elements of superiority that we know we have to hit with every product in our portfolio in order to grow the company. Part of the way that we bring that to the market and part of the way that we talk about that is through these so-called citizenship choices. So what you'll see is the U.S. Women's National Team donation was actually brought forward by Secret, which is uh, a deodorant mm -hmm. that we have, which has yep. really been working hard over the years and is the equity of the product to talk about gender equality and specifically pay disparity. So it, it, there, every, every piece of what we do has some sort of a nexus back to the equity of a brand, which is informed by the values of the consumer that it serves. So that's how you actually bring mm -hmm. it full circle to, to drive the growth of the product and ultimately the growth of the company. Yeah, uh, smart. I, I'd be interested. How did you how did you come to the point of saying, okay, with the look and the talk, and the look uh, shows life through the eyes of a black man, uh, the talk which um, illustrates the difficult conversation that parents uh, have to have nowadays with their children in order to keep them safe in, in a world you know full of of prejudice. Um, what's the process? I mean, I, I, I hear you say, you know, in terms of uh, U.S. women's soccer, that certainly arose because you had a specific brand that had chosen a particular way to connect uh, with their consumer audiences. What happened with, with these films? Because that's kind of unique, mm -hmm. I think. It's rooted in a desire to drive equality fundamentally, because equality is good for the world, it's good for business, it's good for economic development and growth stimulation. So 
the, the, the tether back to some of these things are choices that we're trying to make to drive equality holistically. With respect to that in the context of racial bias, some of the insights that we have through the work that we've done with platforms such as My Black is Beautiful or other programs that we've done specifically targeting and engaging with black consumers, one of the things that we understood to be true was uh, the need to spark dialogue around some of the elements that were mm -hmm. holding back equality. And, and so if you think about you know, what happens with the look and the microaggressions when somebody walks into the room or the talk and kicking open a conversation around what needs to happen in black households around America, um, that is helping people more broadly understand uh, unique circumstances and unique experiences that fuel a conversation, that drive awareness, that help lead to equality. So it's a continuum for us mm -hmm. on some of these things, especially the more socially oriented content and the more mm -hmm. socially oriented platforms. It's around a desire to drive awareness because that awareness will lead to understanding. Understanding leads to change. And 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 Craig, so this also. By, by the way, we'll we'll put a link onto both. Um, the look and the talk, the two um, movies That'd be great. Really yep. that we're talking about on the Crux website. But this also creates being out front on some of these things, some risk for you as um, mm -hmm. to the brand. Um, thinking back to the Gillette, you know, sort of the Me Too razor mm -hmm. ad in which um, you also took a position there, and that did create some pushback. When we put out something that is in this, in this citizenship space that's uh, kind of in a social social category. So stick with the Gillette and the Me Too for a second. Yeah, so yeah. That, that film was called We Believe and really right. was uh, intended to start a conversation around, you know, what is the role of men in, in really driving toward equality and in the context of uh, the Me Too movement. And I think there's an interesting little learning here, which is the perception of how things are received if you're just reading the trolls on the internet and the reality of how things are received when you look at, you know, the consumers that, who are actually trying to reach with this. And we know when we came out of the gate with We Believe that there was a few very coordinated um, detractors who came at us very hard. Fundamentally, though, the data underneath of that showed that the consumers who were trying to reach had a much more favorable disposition around Gillette, felt more aligned with the values that Gillette was espousing, had intended at that point to make purchasing decisions that were more favorable to Gillette, moving from uh, you know a Harris or a Dollar Shave over to Gillette based on that. Right. So, so again, one of, the, one of the important things to understand here is for sure, whenever you take a point of view, by definition, you're going you're gonna to hear both sides of it from stakeholders and consumers. But, you know, in today's world, a brand and a company no longer has the luxury of trying to play the middle here. The consumers and the stakeholders and purchasing right. decisions are going to be made based on the demonstrated and spoken values of a company or a brand. So you've got to decide what that is. You've got to own that and you've got to drive that. Well, and also, that's, so, that's yeah, great. Yeah. And what it seems to underscore, too, is you have to have an extraordinary relationship with the marketing team. I mean, as, as a CEO, I guess, in today's world, 
um, particularly in, in CPG, and I worked in that space as well um, earlier on in my career. But how do you see your role in building that relationship uh, with Mark Pritchard and the people that are concerned about product brands? Um, how does that all come together, particularly on the front end, but as well as when there's a bit of controversy like we've just talked about with Gillette? Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at the end of the day, I'm evaluated largely based on the reputation of the company across a number of dimensions. And that's something that we report to the board every year. And the reason that's important, as you well know, is that the better the reputation of a company, the higher propensity a stakeholder has to do things mm-hmm. like buy your products, advocate Absolutely. on your behalf, give you the benefit of doubt in a crisis, et cetera. Delivering on that requires an exceptionally high degree of collaboration. I think unlike anything that we've had in our industry uh, until late, because you've got to pull in cross-functional teams, you've got to pull in at different business units, you've got to pull in different geographies, and you've got to bring in different members of the leadership team. Mm -hmm. So on any given day, I'm interacting broadly across those, those parts of the company, as is nearly everybody on my team. I mean, frankly, one of the one of the main characteristics that I look for in a hiring decision is collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I can teach you how to write a press release. I can't really necessarily teach you how to be highly collaborative, um, and that's the only way it works. I think it's, it's all about aligning behind a shared vision and a goal and driving the shared accountability. Are you organized? Do you think any differently than perhaps others? I think I think if you lead with how you're organized, you're actually already because you've got to be able to navigate around any existing organizational structure or any existing hierarchy to get some of these things done. And I don't mean that in a let's go rogue sort of way, right. but I can tell you on the executional side of some of these things, they just don't unfold along hierarchical or organizational lines. Exactly. So it's about having the right internal network. It's about having the right internal advocate. It's mm-hmm. about reverse mentoring in a big way, um, which I'm a huge fan of. So I think I think it's sort of a flawed approach to mm-hmm. say, does the organizational structure help to drive any of this? Because it's much right. more about the behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Terrific. Craig, so I, I told you we were going to talk about diapers. <laughs> and this is not... This is not just gratuitous to you know bring diapers into it, but I did read the story the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, P&G is, uh, we, we, everybody talks about connectivity and data. You've got a, a program going to help with an app, uh, help uh, parents know when their children's diapers are wet. Um, so <laughs> I thought you waited till you know, they cried. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And, and, but, you know, the real focus in a lot, in communications these days on, on and particularly in big multinationals is on moving from a reactive to a predictive function, right? And so mm-hmm. that app is about a predictive event, um, you know, understanding, you know, your child's uh, habits, et cetera. So I'll use that as a sort of a strange way to introduce this question. So how have you been using data or other tools and information to try to get out in front on the issues, um, both from an opportunity standpoint or a risk standpoint, that affect P&G? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, the, the Lumi diaper launch, which you referenced, is actually just one piece of uh, this broader 
connected portfolio that we have. And incidentally, it doesn't just tell you when baby's diaper is wet. It also helps you understand sleep cycles and other things that are important to the holistic health oh. and well-being of your child. So, um, Terrific. But the, 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 the thing is, we were an exhibitor at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, this year for the first time. And I think a lot of folks going in might have been scratching their heads to say, that's interesting. You know, sort of why is the soap and paper towel company coming to the Consumer Electronics Show? And we actually had a pretty sizable booth, and our, one of our products, actually a heated razor by Gillette, won best of CES in our first year there. Hmm. So our innovation portfolio is amazing, and we have connected products in oral care and skin care and air care and now, as, as we talked, in baby care. And all of this is really focused on the experience for our consumers. So we, we actually went into... Uh, the consumer electronics show and talked about what we're doing to make it a consumer experience show because it's we, we see a shift in this regard. So the the connectivity is about giving the consumer better experience and it's derived from insights which then fuel the innovation cycle for us. So from a communications perspective, it then gives us the opportunity to tell a meaningful story about the very things that drive corporate reputation, such as innovation and superior point products. Right. But if you marry that to the stories that we're telling about what we're doing in the citizenship space, you then have the full complement of content that is important to our consumers and to our stakeholders. I think from a predictive analytics perspective, which is sort of you know more to the root of your question, to be perfectly mm -hmm. honest, we are still lear learning our way into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as are we all. Could I, Greg, could I follow up on one thing here that was part of your answer to a couple of questions? So you, you've got these five or six areas where you focus on um, from a, you know, force for good area. Uh, we've seen and read a lot about CEO activism lately, mm -hmm. and I, I'm a bit of a skeptic in that space um, for a couple of reasons. But do you have a process for... Uh, given this broad portfolio or broad program that you have on on good goodness, on when P and G jumps into um, social issues, human rights issues, um, other things that are going on in a public policy standpoint, do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, so we definitely do. It's it's very dynamic, as I said on the front end. So you know what might be true today is it might be different tomorrow, what have you, but. We do actually have internally something called a citizenship board. David Taylor, our CEO, chairs that board. And that board is, is comprised of representatives from, so I sit on that board. Our executive sponsor for uh, gender equality globally is on that board. Our head of HR is on that board. Mark Pritchard, who you mentioned, is on that board. Debbie Majoris, who is uh, our chief secretary and legal officer on that board. So it's intended to represent all the functional or business units that um, would be thinking about how P&G would make choices within the context of these five areas that we call our citizenship agenda. Now, we do that prospectively right. on, a, on a rolling basis, but that's not to say, so for instance, again, going back to the U.S. Women's National Team, when we had the, our, our annual planning meeting, we didn't necessarily have in our sites the fact that we're going to make a donation like that based on the broader mm -hmm. context of, uh, you know, pay equity, et cetera. So we have to be agile and opportunistic as well. And that process gets back to 
what I was saying earlier around the networks, right? And having the, the ability to say, we want to execute against this. We want to, you know, here's an opportunistic thing for us. Who needs to be part of the decision? Who needs to be maybe not part of the decision, but aware of the fact that we're making this decision because there'll be implications to their work, et cetera. So that is a much more agile process that is um, informed by who needs to know, who needs to be involved at that particular moment. But fundamentally, you know, more, more holistically and strategically, the choices that we make under this citizenship umbrella are driven by the citizenship board, which David chairs. And I think having that level of involvement and advocacy yes. is really what allows us to be so successful. Uh, I think that's a really good framework and approach. And I, I, and I think it'd be very helpful to other companies who I sense are struggling with that part of their um, citizenship is when to jump in and when not to when some of these things uh, uh, erupt. You know, the other aspect that I'm kind of interested in, because, like, you take a very disciplined approach. Um, you include lots of stakeholders. You've got your your, your five platforms, uh, and yet you're still measuring things. You're using technology. And then there's that creative piece. Um, how do you... How do you sort of balance all of that? Particularly, I know you you went ahead and premiered uh, the look at Khan. Um, why did you decide to premiere it there? Um, and how do you use uh, data uh, to help you as in the creative process and supporting these various efforts? So, in terms of of our presence at can our platform was actually around reimagining creativity uh -huh. um and you know we we sort of have the license i think to lead some of this conversation because we are the world's largest advertiser and what we're saying is that world is being massively disrupted and as in most things you can either lead disruption or you can be disrupted mm -hmm. um and we choose the former so you know we're very Vocal about the fact that traditional TV advertising reach continues to decline. Uh, we know that there's a lot happening in digital advertising, but ad blocking software is increasing, which makes it challenging. Mm -hmm. And then we've got over the top streaming content, which continues to grow where there's no space for advertising at all. We talked, I mean, speaking of data, we seven out of 10 people tell us that ads are annoying. <laughs> so <laughs> they consider them to be irrelevant, lacking in certain insight, you know, not useful to me as, as a viewer or a consumer. And in some cases, what we're seeing in advertising, which, which you know, fuels lots of things, doesn't even accurately reflect who, who people are. So we went to Cannes this year with a platform around reimagining creativity for all of the reasons that I there, there mm -hmm. around, you know, traditional advertising. Right. And so what we're looking to do is create these new partnerships, creative partnerships um, that kind of merge the traditional ad world with other creative worlds like filmmaking, like music, like technology, journalism. And we're driving toward more integrated content. So we're actually doing things like telling stories about our journey in LGBT as PNG in 20 minute documentaries uh, with CNN and Great Big Story. We're doing uh, multi-part series with National Geographic around things in this citizenship platform um, mm -hmm. using four examples and, and integrating that content into storytelling 
that is meaningful and relevant to consumers in a way that is really disruptive to the traditional buy this ad unit. Now, that's not to say that we're completely walking away from advertising. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that we have a desire to be on the leading edge of disruption as we see this world continue to change and evolve. And we're focusing that on things like different and new creative partnerships. So, so great. Um, I want to get to the less glamorous part of being a CCO. You know, Khan is very nice and a uh, beautiful place. You fought a really tough, when you got this job, you fought a really tough battle with an activist investor, um, Nelson Pelta Tryon, who ultimately ended up on your board after um, several iterations of uh, a vote. You know, and I dealt with the same thing and same investor, actually, when I was at GE. And this is a part of CCO's world today is uh, the ability of activist investors really to use political tactics uh, to make a point about your company. Anything that you would take away from that experience um, that you think would be helpful to people? I think so. First, it was, you know, a distinct credential of being the largest proxy contest in the history of corporations, which I think still stands <laughs> today. Um, I think it's important also to say that this board is working exceptionally well together. We did learn a lot from a communication standpoint, which in some respects I think was really just a reinforcement of core principles. I think first of all, it helped us really crystallize some of our messaging, both internally and externally, in terms of the growth strategy that we were successfully executing. Yeah. Second, it helped reinforce for us the benefits of mobilizing a small cross-functional team that was empowered to act. So agility is the name of the game, as you well know, and having fewer empowered people was really important learning for us. So the other benefit of that, of course, is that the rest of the team can focus on running the day-to-day -day work. And then the third is it really, for me, uh, reinforced the need to ensure that stakeholders, again, internally and externally, understand the breadth and expertise of a board. I think it's really important to make sure that a board isn't just headshots on a web page, but really yeah. positions your stakeholders as this unparalleled source of insights and experience that is guiding the direction of the company. So I think those are some yeah. of the tenets that we walked away with. Yeah, really well said. And in, in the first one about really crystallizing who you are, what your strategy is, how you plan to grow. Uh, it was something I took away too from the experience at GE. It's not always it's it's not always a great day when you wake up and you've got one of these guys on your doorstep. But I do think it yeah it makes you better in in that sense. Uh, so ahead, so, so Craig, one last question: How do your employees react to all of this? Yeah, I think this is a great question. It's important to make sure that you bring employees along the journey. TNG at its core is a company that's predicated upon listening. This is how we get the insights that drive our innovation portfolio. And so we do the same internally as well. So obviously we have our employee survey annually, which is the bellwether for us. But in that, we see some really amazing results across everything that we're talking about here today, both our innovation portfolio, our citizenship platform. But 87% of our employees are confident in the purpose, values, and principles of this company, and that's a steady number. 82% of employees are confident in the choices that we're making across our diversity and inclusion platform, and that number's on the rise. And 80% of our employees are confident in the choices that we're making on the environment, and that's on the rise. Interestingly, 
we have a not insignificant percentage of employees who are telling us to do more faster. So we know that as we think about being a force for good and a force for growth, we've got an army of 100,000 people behind us to drive toward making the world a better place. That's wow. terrific. Those numbers are really, really amazing. And boy, what a set of learning um, uh, on this call with you, Craig. I, I think there's something here for everybody who's in a CCO's role and even the folks who work with them at the agency. So thank you for being on. I, I want you to know, Greg, that in the mail already is a T-shirt for the crux, a beautiful T-shirt and <laughs> a mug with a crux. So enjoy that. I Magnificent. I look forward to it. <laughs> Wear it proudly. When that arrives. Wear it proudly. Exactly. You bet. So thanks again. Thanks again for being on. And really, best of luck in everything you're doing at P&G. That's uh, really a remarkable agenda. Thanks. Thank you both for your time. Take care. Take care, Craig. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.